0: If I were to define quantum biology, I'd say it's not what many people might think, that at the very deepest level, if you look into a living system, a living cell, down to the level of molecules and atoms, then you hit the quantum world. Because that will be true for life as well as for inanimate matter, where the quantum rules kick in. No, quantum biology as we define it today means exploring the mechanisms and phenomena that rely on non-trivial quantum effects within living cells. By non-trivial, I mean quantum tunneling, long-lived quantum coherence and superposition, quantum entanglement evening. These are surprising effects that we are now seeing taking place within living organisms. That is quantum biology. We tend to think about quantum biology as being quite a, a new Area of interdisciplinary science, and in many ways it is, Uh, but actually it has rather old origins going all the way back to the early 1930s. In fact, we can even trace it back to a particular lecture that Niels Bohr gave at a conference in 1929. He hinted at the idea, as many of the quantum pioneers were doing back then, that maybe quantum mechanics holds the key to so much of science. And the fact that quantum mechanics, in their opinion, solved the problems of of physics and chemistry, they arrogantly then assumed that it could also be used to tackle the mystery of life itself. And so Bohr was one of these uh, uh, early quantum pioneers who suggested maybe quantum mechanics could play a role. And he inspired other physicists, particularly people like Max Delbruck, who then actually then changed field and became a biophysicist working in molecular biology, and also Pascal Jordan. Now, Jordan is most famous because he was one of the authors on the classic papers on quantum mechanics, on matrix mechanics, with Max Born and Werner Heisenberg in Göttingen. Uh, Jordan, I guess, is lesser known than Born and and Heisenberg, but he's certainly one of the the names of the the quantum pioneers of the 1920s. Jordan uh, really, in a sense, was the founder of of the field of quantum biology. He was looking for uh, uh, rules from the quantum world, such as indeterminism, complementarity, ideas that he had developed by studying under Bohr, and whether they applied and played a vital role in, in life. Uh, in fact, uh, Pascal Jordan probably published the very first paper on quantum biology back in 1932, uh, advocating some of his ideas about how uh, quantum mechanics uh, and the, the act of observation and so on lead to the phenomena of life, which were still in some sense mysterious. The problem, of course, is Pascal Jordan's political views were rather Unpleasant. He was a Nazi. And he wasn't just one of those people in 1930s Germany who kept their head down, who maybe didn't speak out against the government. No, he was a fully paid up fascist. And so after the war, with his reputation, of course, in, 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 in ruin, quantum biology also in some sense was tainted by the shadow of being championed by, by uh, Pascal Jordan. However, there were others uh, who who still believed there was something in uh, this idea that quantum mechanics could play a role in explaining life. So in the early 1930s, the the Cambridge Theoretical Biology Club was formed, and it contained many of the, some of the greatest thinkers in Cambridge of that day. Even people like the great evolutionary biologist J.B.S. Haldane, uh, many philosophers, many mathematicians, as well as physicists and, and biologists, The Cambridge Theoretical Biology Club, essentially, I think they advocated a view which we would call organicism. Now, the organicists were sort of halfway between two other rather extreme schools of thought, which they believed were wrong when it came to describing life. On the one hand, you had the mechanistical, reductionist view of life. The living systems, yes, they were highly ordered. Yes, they maintained low entropy. But essentially, we're steam engines. You give us energy, we use that useful low entropy energy to maintain the order within the systems of life. So that was the the mechanistical view. On the other extreme was vitalism. Now, the vitalists had been discredited by the 20th century, really, because they believed there was some magical spark that endowed life with whatever makes life special that differentiates between living and non-living matter. So the organicists said, no, uh, there's something more to life than just sort of machines where you can't get to understand it with what we currently know, uh, building on sort of Newtonian laws, for example, But on the other hand, there is, they they argued, something special about life. Maybe, presumably, some as yet undiscovered or not particularly well understood laws of physics and chemistry that are required to explain biology. If I were pushed, I'd say in some sense that that is what most quantum biologists, or certainly those physicists, chemists, biologists, spectroscopists who work in quantum biology. There is really no such thing as a quantum biologist. This is what they would argue today. There are laws of physics or chemistry as yet to be understood that would need, be needed to explain plain life. Of course, uh, that group in Cambridge in the 1930s, there were others. Certainly, for example, among the quantum pioneers, Erwin Schrödinger should really be mentioned because he published a very famous book called What is Life?, in 1944, in which he proposed that maybe the the order of living systems is akin to inanimate matter at very low temperature. We know that when you drop down to near absolute zero, quantum effects kick in, like superconductivity or superfluidity. When the thermodynamic um, random agitation of, of atoms and molecules can be calmed down, and you allow for quantum effects to to persist. We see that in inanimate matter at low temperature. Schrodinger was advocating that maybe living matter with its low entropy, highly ordered state is akin to inanimate matter at low temperature, therefore it also is the way it is because of quantum effects and quantum phenomena. He talked about aperiodic crystals, which, of course, them that's what DNA is, essentially. It's an aperiodic crystal. So the, the basic fundamental building blocks of life do somehow have a requirement to be explained by, by laws of physics and, in particular, quantum physics. The one thing that we have to remember is that quantum mechanics and then developing into quantum field theory and so on was developing in parallel with the new areas of biology, genetics and molecular biology. And the geneticists and molecular biologists by the 1930s, 1940s, and indeed 1950s when double helix structure was discovered, really felt they had no need for quantum mechanics. They were were so successful. They were learning so much about the molecular structure uh, within living systems that they saw no requirement to bring in the strangeness of quantum mechanics. So to a large extent, quantum biology really went into abeyance. It it sort of went into the background, particularly after the discovery of the double helix of DNA, um, spectroscopists, molecular biologists really were learning so much more about the the building blocks of the cell, the the instruction manual of life. Uh, They had no room for quantum superpositions and the measurement problem and the uncertainty principle. And on all that silly business, they leave that to the to the physicists. At the same time, physicists had their hands full. You know, we we've we've also been very successful in the 20th century. From from quantum mechanics comes quantum field theory. Nuclear and particle physics develop. We 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 learn about the building blocks of matter. On the theoretical side, we started looking at how we unify the different ideas, the different forces of nature. Quantum field theory itself then evolved into quantum electrodynamics. Uh, quantum chromodynamics by the 1960s and 70s. Uh, We're building bigger and bigger accelerators to look at smaller and smaller constituents of matter. Physicists didn't want to go and look at the messy world of biology. Biologists didn't have the quantum mechanical background to apply some of this hard maths to the, the processes of life. So until all the way for several decades, probably until the 1990s, very little was done. Quantum biology was seen as a outside a rather um, controversial, somewhat wacky area of science. Uh, particularly when you think about some of the ideas that grew up during the 90s, late 60s and early 70s, uh, when people were using quantum mechanics to describe all sorts of strange phenomena, such as um, telepathy or I- ideas in pseudoscience that you know quantum mechanics developed this mystical arm. One of the most uh, uh, famous examples uh, was the work of uh, Roger Penrose and Stuart Hameroff. They proposed a mechanism that they argued explained the nature of consciousness. Um, and, and, and the idea that there were these, these proteins within the, the neurons of the brain that could exist in a quantum superposition of two configurations and when enough of them Uh, became entangled together, that's when consciousness switched on. There was some brief excitement about this idea initially, but I think very quickly most scientists said, no, hang on a minute. Just because quantum mechanics is mysterious and we don't understand it, and and consciousness is mysterious and we don't understand it, does not mean that the two have to be connected. And so that was another reason why people were rather nervous about approaching some of the ideas in quantum biology. That changed in the 1990s, suddenly there were um, experimental techniques using fast pulsed lasers, 2D uh, spectroscopy it was called, uh, where you could pump biomolecules, excite them and see how they decay. And suddenly some of these experiments was, were beginning to show that there were quantum effects going on. Long-lived coherence, uh, long-lived interference effects that you couldn't explain otherwise. Think of the, the famous two-slit experiment in quantum mechanics, uh, firing a beam of, of uh, uh, particles, whether photons or electrons or whatever, through the two slits, and you see the interference pattern. You can't explain, even when you fire them one at a time, you can't explain that interference pattern using classical mechanics. You need quantum mechanics. Well, they were seeing the equivalent of that taking place in certain special mechanisms within living cells. For example, the way enzymes transfer particles from one part of a molecule to another. Electrons and later even protons, 2,000 times more massive than an electron, they were seeing these protons quantum tunnel from one place to, to, to another. I became interested in this field of quantum biology in the late 90s, but only as a hobby. I wasn't taking it seriously. My background is, is nuclear, theoretical nuclear physics. So I've spent my career modeling nuclear reactions, quantum scattering theories, where we can compare with experiments and and, uh, we can develop and advance our theories. But John Joe McFadden, who's a um, a molecular biologist colleague of mine here at the University of Surrey, this was in 1997. He came to the physics department and he gave a seminar on an idea that he had. And he he said quite, he admitted uh, that this was probably a wacky idea. There's a certain type of um, mutation called adaptive mutations in which, for example, bacteria, E. coli in in this case that he was looking at, uh, had the option of of mutating in one direction or another. And without any help from the surrounding environment, that should be random, 50-50. But if their surrounding environment um, contained, in this case, glucose, sort of energy, one of those mutated states could Take advantage of, but the other couldn't. Suddenly, you saw more mutations going towards the, the 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 side that could utilize the the food in its environment. And this was a puzzle. You know, how how, how do, can it know in advance before it mutates? It doesn't know that there's glucose in the environment. So and so, oh, I, if I mutate this way, I can I can feed and multiply and and uh, and uh, uh, make many copies of myself. But if I go the other direction, I can't utilize the glucose and I'll die. The idea that John J. McFadden had was that somehow some biomolecule within the E. coli bacteria could exist in a superposition of two states uh, or the genetic mutation could exist in in superposition of two states. And it maintained that superposition until the time when it could be measured by its environment. When it decoheres, it'll happen in two different ways. It was a very hand wavy idea. Um, and essentially, most of the physics department here at Surrey, who listened to his talk, dismissed his ideas out of hand, partly because it was crazy and partly because he was a biologist trying to tell us physicists about quantum mechanics. I was intrigued enough that I spoke to John Joe about this afterwards and thereafter began a collaboration that has now lasted over two decades between us, in which we've looked at ideas of quantum mechanics in in biology, and as we our interest has grown, so has the field of quantum biology. Other examples have been discovered, still controversial, still you know open to to, to be dismissed as, as 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 wrong, but nevertheless examples published in top papers like Science and Nature, which suggests that something quantum mechanical is going on inside living cells, whether it's in photosynthesis, whether it's in enzyme catalysis, whether it's in mutations of DNA. Even more controversially, the way we smell, the the, the theories of olfaction, or magnetoreception, the way certain animals can sense the Earth's magnetic field, that their chemical compass that allows them to detect the orientation of the field relies on quantum effects quantum entanglement of two 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 electrons so these are controversial ideas they're speculative but they're they're hugely uh, exciting and um, we have yet to 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 know for sure whether whether or not this is going to lead to something for me as a theoretical physicist what's exciting is that it's allowed me to move into this new field open quantum systems the idea that you, when you're solving a problem in quantum mechanics you no longer just solve the schrodinger equation because your quantum system of interest is surrounded by an environment that plays a very important role. And that's why people are sceptical about quantum biology. say, so how can these delicate, ephemeral, short-lived quantum effects have any functional role at all in biology, given that they are existing within an environment that is warm, complex, messy? Surely decoherence kicks in within femtoseconds. But to play a biologically significant role, they have to last for pico or nanoseconds or even even longer. And yet, it seems there are hints that life has evolved the ability to maintain these quantum effects for long biologically significant periods of time. The noise of the environment that measures the system that causes it to decohere. Or today we talk about a quantum system becoming increasingly entangled with its surrounding environment. Rather than killing off quantum effects, it seems to be resonating with it. It seems to be maintaining it. There seems to be different kinds of noise that we have to now consider. So from a theoretical point of view, this is a hugely exciting area, borders on questions like what is the measurement problem, questions about in the foundations of quantum mechanics, Studying some of these phenomena in quantum biology, of course, is more than just intellectual curiosity. Uh, if we think about some of the big areas that are funded in research today, particularly here in the UK, uh, I can think of two. One is quantum technologies, the idea of utilising some of the non-trivial quantum mechanics to develop new instruments and new, and new techniques and, and, and so on, new sensors. A lot of money is going into quantum technologies, has nothing to do with biology. On the other hand, you have synthetic biology, developing machines that rely on the machinery of life. Quantum biology somehow is the bridge, I argue, between synthetic biology and quantum technologies. If some of these mechanisms that that we're now seeing in in living systems, like long-lived coherence and photosynthesis, like quantum tunneling in DNA... If they turn out to be true, and this, it's not magic, you know, life has had nearly four billion years to perfect all its trickery. If utilizing the rules of the quantum world gave life an advantage over classical rules, it would have used them. So, therefore, can we learn? If life has figured out some of these tricks, can we learn from life and develop our own ideas? Will this have a bearing on the um, uh, work in, in developing quantum computers? Will it have a bearing on on, on work developing new quantum magnetic sensors? Uh, So there are all sorts of technologies that might be uh, advanced, maybe developing new types of, of photovoltaic cells and certainly to develop solar power. If plants and bacteria in their photosynthesis have used a very clever trick from the quantum world, maybe we can copy that to help our advances in our technologies. Now, here at Surrey, we finally, John Joe and I, have finally become very serious about quantum biology. And we now have a centre, a doctoral training uh, centre funded by the Leverhulme Trust, which is a a charity, to take on PhD students. And we now have an interdisciplinary group containing theoretical physicists, computational chemists, uh, molecular biologists and geneticists, all working together, bringing together people from across the university in different fields looking at different aspects of quantum biology. It may end up really not being anything, but for me, it's such an important question. And the nature of life is still mysterious enough that I think it's too important not to look at seriously.